Sense and Sensibility, Chapter Seventeen. Mrs. Dashwood was surprised only for a moment at seeing him, for his coming to Barton was, in her opinion, of all things, the most natural. Her joy and expressions of regard long outlived her wonder. He received the kindest welcome from her, and shyness, coldness, and reserve could not stand against such a reception. They had begun to fail him before he entered the house, and they were quite overcome. By the captivating manners of Mrs. Dashwood, indeed, a man could not very well be in love with either of her daughters without extending the passion to her. And Eleanor had the satisfaction of seeing him soon become more like himself. His affections seemed to reanimate toward them all, and his interest, however, he praised their house, admired its properties, and was attentive and kind. But still, he was not in spirits. The whole family perceived it, and Mrs. Dashwood, attributing it to some want of liberality in his mother, sat down to table indignant against all selfish parents. "What are Mrs. Ferris's views for you at present, Edward?" she said when dinner was over and they had drawn round the fire. "Are you still to be a great orator in spite of yourself?" "No. I hope my mother is now convinced that I have no more talents than inclinations for a public life." But how is your fame to be established? For famous you must be to satisfy all of your family, and with no inclination for expense, no affection for strangers, no profession, and no assurance, you may find it a difficult matter. I shall not attempt it. I have no wish to be distinguished, and I have every reason to hope I never shall. Thank heaven! I cannot be forced into genius and eloquence. You have no ambition. I well know your wishes are all moderate. As moderate as those of the rest of the world, I believe. I wish, as well as everybody else, to be perfectly happy. But like everybody else, it must be in my own way. Greatness will not make me so. Strange if it would," cried Marianne. "What have wealth or grandeur to do with happiness? Grandeur has but little," said Eleanor. "But wealth has much to do with it." Eleanor, for shame," said Marianne. "Money can only give happiness where there is nothing else to give it. Beyond a competence, it can afford no real satisfaction as far as mere self is concerned." "Perhaps," said Eleanor, smiling. "We may come to the same point. Your competence and my wealth are very much alike, I dare say, and without them, as the world goes now, we shall both agree that every kind of external comfort must be wanting. Your ideas are only more noble than mine. Come, what is your competence?" About eighteen hundred or two thousand a year, not more than that. Eleanor laughed. Two thousand a year. One is my wealth. I guess it. I guessed how it would end. And yet, two thousand a year is a very moderate income," said Marianne. "A family cannot well be maintained on a smaller. I am sure I am not extravagant in my demands. A proper establishment of service, servants, a carriage, perhaps two, and hunters cannot be supported on less." Eleanor smiled again to hear her sister describing so accurately their future expenses at Combe Magna. Hunters repeated Edward, but why must you have hunters? Everybody does not hunt. Marianne coloured as she replied, but most people do. I wish," said Margaret, striking out a novel thought, "that somebody would give us all a large fortune apiece. Oh, that they would!" cried Marianne, her eyes sparkling with animation and her cheeks glowing with delight of such imaginary happiness. We are all unanimous in that wish, I suppose," said Eleanor, in spite of the insufficiency of wealth. "Oh dear!" cried Margaret. "How happy I should be! I wonder what I should do with it." Marianne looked as if she had no doubt on that point. "I should be puzzled to spend a large fortune myself," said Mrs. Dashwood. "If my children were all to be rich without my help, you must begin your improvements on this house," observed Eleanor, "and your difficulties will soon vanish." 
What magnificent orders would travel from this family to London, said Edward. In such an event, what a happy day for booksellers, music tellers, and print shops. You, Mrs. Dashwood, would give a general commission for every new print of merit to be sent to you. And as for Marianne, I know her greatness of soul. There would not be music enough in London to content her. And books, Thompson, Cowper, Scott, she would buy them all over and over again. She would buy up every copy, I believe, to prevent their falling into unworthy hands, and she would have every book that tells how to admire an old twisted tree. Should you not, Marianne? Forgive me if I am very saucy, but I am willing to show you that I had not forgotten our old disputes. I love to be reminded of the past, Edward, whether it be melancholy or gay. I love to recall it, and you will never offend me by taking a former of times. You are very right in supposing how my money would be spent, some of it at least. My loose cash would be certainly employed in improving my collection of music and books. And the bulk of your fortune would be laid out in annuities on the authors or their heirs? No, Edward, I should have something else to do with it. Perhaps then you would bestow it as a reward on that person who wrote the ablest defense of your favorite maxim, that no one can ever be more in love than is once in their life, for your opinion on that point is unchanged, I presume? Undoubtedly. At my time of life, opinions are tolerably fixed. It is not unlikely that I should now see or hear anything to change them. Marianne is as steadfast as ever, you see, said Eleanor. She is not at all altered. She has only grown a little more grave than she was. Nay, Edward, said Marianne, you need not reproach me. You are not very gay yourself. Why should you think so, replied he with a sigh. But gaiety was never part of my character, nor do I think it part of Marianne, said Eleanor. I should hardly call her a lively girl. She is very earnest, very eager in all she does, sometimes talks a great deal and always with animation, but she is not often really merry. I believe you are right, he replied, and yet I have always set her down as a lively girl. I have frequently detected myself in such kind of mistakes, said Eleanor, in a total misapprehension of character in some point or another, fancying people, fancying people so much more gay or grave or ingenious or stupid than they really are. And I can hardly tell you what or in why, what, why or in what deception the deception originated. Sometimes one is guided by what they say of themselves and very frequently by what other people say of them without giving oneself time to deliberate and judge. But I thought it was right, Eleanor, said Marianne, to be guided wholly by the opinion of other people. I thought our judgments were given us merely to be subservient to those of our neighbors. This has always been your doctrine, I am sure. No, Marianne, never. My doctrine has never aimed at the subjection of the understanding. All I have ever attempted to influence has been the behavior. You must not confound my meaning. I am guilty, I confess, of having often wished you to treat our acquaintance in general with greater attention. But when have I advised you to adopt their sentiments or conform to their judgment in serious matters? You've not been able to bring your sister over to your plan of general civility, said Edward to Eleanor. Do you gain no ground? Quite the contrary, replied Eleanor, looking expressively at Marianne. My judgment, he returned, is all on the side of the question, but I'm afraid my practice is much more on your sister's. I never wish to offend, but I am so foolishly shy, and I often seem negligent when I am only kept back by my natural awkwardness. I have frequently thought that I must have been so intended by nature to be fond of low company. I am so little at ease among strangers of gentility. Marianne has not shyness to excuse any inattention of her, said Eleanor. She knows her own worth too well for false shame, replied Edward. Shyness is only the effect of a sense of inferiority in some way or the other. If I could persuade myself that in my manners were perfectly easy and graceful, I should not be shy. But you would still be reserved, said Marianne, and that is worse. 
Edward started. Reserved? Am I reserved, Marianne? Yes, very. I do not understand you, he replied, coloring. Reserved? How? In what manner? What am I to tell you? What can you suppose? Eleanor looked surprised at his emotion, but trying to laugh off the subject, she said to him, do not you know my sister well enough to understand what she means? Do not you know she calls everyone reserved who does not talk fast and admire what she admires as rapture, rapturously as herself? Edward made no answer. His gravity and thoughtfulness returned on him in their fullest extent, and he sat for some time silent and dull. Chapter 18 Eleanor saw with great uneasiness the low spirits of her friend. His visit afforded her but a partial satisfaction, while his own enjoyment in it, in it appeared so imperfect. It was evident that he was unhappy. She wished it were equally evident that he still distinguished her by the same affection with which once she had no felt no doubt of inspiring. But hitherto, the continuance of his preference seemed very uncertain, and the reservedness of his manner toward her contradicted one moment what a more animated look had intimated the preceding one. He joined her and Marianne in the breakfast room the next morning before the others were down, and Marianne, who was once always eager to promote their happiness as far as she could, soon left them to themselves. But before she was halfway up the stairs, she heard the parlor door open and, turning around, was astonished to see Edward himself come out. I am going into the village to see my horses, said he. As you are not ready for breakfast, I shall be back again presently. Edward returned to them with fresh admiration of the surrounding country. In his walk to the village, he had seen many parts of the valley to advantage, and the village itself, in a much higher situation than the cottage, afforded a general view of the whole, which had exceedingly pleased him. This was a subject which ensured Marianne's attention, and she was beginning to describe her own admiration of these scenes and to question him more minutely on the objects that had particularly struck him, when Edward interrupted her by saying, you must not inquire too far, Marianne. Remember, I have no knowledge of the picturesque, and I shall offend you by my ignorance and want of taste if we are to come to particulars. I shall call steep, I shall call hills steep, which ought to be bold, surfaces strange and uncouth, which ought to be irregular and rugged, and distant objects out of sight, which ought to be only indistinct through the soft medium of a hazy atmosphere. You must be satisfied with such admiration as I can honestly give. I call it a very fine country. The hills are steep. The woods are, the woods seem full of fine timber and the valley looks comfortable and snug with rich meadows and several neat farmhouses scattered here and there. It exactly answers my idea of a fine country because it unites beauty with utility. And I dare say it is a picturesque one too because you admire it. I can easily believe it to be full of rocks and promontories, gray moss and brushwood, but these are all lost on me. I know nothing of the picturesque. I am afraid it all but too true, said Marianne. Why should you boast of it? I suspect, said Eleanor, that to avoid one kind of affectation, Edward here falls into another, because he believes many people pretend to more admiration of the beauties of nature than they really feel, and is disgusted with such pretensions, he affects greater indifference and less discrimination in viewing them himself than he possesses. He is fastidious and will have an affection affectation of his own. He is, it is very true, said Marianne, that admiration of landscape scenery is become a mere jargon. Everybody pretends to feel and tries to describe with the taste and elegance of him who first defined what picturesque beauty was. I detest jargon of every kind, and I sometimes have kept my feelings to myself because I could find no language to describe them, and but was worn and hackneyed out of some sense of meaning. 
I am convinced, said Edward, that you really feel all of the delight in a fine prospect which you profess to feel. But in return, your sister must allow me to feel no more than I profess. I like a fine prospect, but not on picturesque principles. I do not like crooked, twisted, blasted trees. I admire them much more if they are tall, straight, and flourishing. I do not like ruined, tattered cottages. I'm not fond of nettles or thistles or heath blossoms. I have more pleasure in a snug farmhouse than a watchtower, and a troop of tidy, happy villagers please me better than the finest banditti in the world. Marianne looked with amazement at Edward with compassion at her sister. Eleanor only laughed. The subject was continued no farther, and Marianne remained thoughtfully silent till a new object suddenly engaged her attention. She was sitting by Edward, and in taking his tea from Mrs. Dashwood, his hand passed so directly before her as to make a ring with a plate of her hair in the center very conspicuous on one side of his fingers. I never saw you wear a ring before, Edward, she cried. Is that Fanny's hair? I remember her promising to give you some, but I should have thought her hair had been darker. Marianne spoke inconsiderably inconsiderately what she felt, but when she saw how much it pained Edward, her own vexation at her want and thought could not be surpassed by his. He colored very deeply and giving a momentary glance at Eleanor replied, yes, it is my sister's hair. The setting always casts a different shade on it, you know. Eleanor had met his eye and looked conscious likewise. The hair was her own. She instantaneously felt as well satisfied as Marianne. The only difference in their conclusions was that what Marianne considered as a free gift from her sister, Eleanor was conscious must have been procured by some theft or contrivance unknown to herself. She was not in a humor, however, to regard it as an affront, and affecting to take no notice of what had passed by instantly talking of something else, she internally resolved henceforward to catch every opportunity of eye-catching the hair and satisfying herself, beyond all doubt that it was exactly the shade of her own. Edward's embarrassment lasted some time, and it ended in an absence of mind still more settled. He was particularly grave the whole morning. Marianne severely censured herself for what she had said, but her own forgiveness might have been more speedy had she had known how little offense it had given her sister. Before the middle of the day, they were visited by Sir John and Mrs. Jennings, who, having heard of the arrival of gentlemen at the cottage, came to take a survey of the guest. With the assistance of his mother-in-law, Sir John was not long in discovering that the name of Ferris began with an F, and this prepared a future mine of raillery against devoted, the devoted Eleanor, which nothing but the newness of their acquaintance with Edward could have prevented from being immediately sprung. But as it was, she only learned from very significant looks how far their penetration, founded on Margaret's instructions, extended. Sir John never came to the Dashwoods without either inviting them to dine at the park the next day or drink tea with them that evening on the present occasion for the better entertainment of their visitor toward who towards whose amusement he felt himself bound to contribute he wished to engage them both you must drink tea with us tonight he said for we shall be quite alone and tomorrow you must absolutely dine with us for we shall be a large party mrs jennings enforced the necessity and who knows but you may raise a dance she said and that will tempt you miss marianne a dance, cried Marianne, impossible. Who was to dance? Why, who yourselves and the Carries and the Whitakers and be sure to be sure what you thought nobody could dance because a certain person that shall be nameless is gone? I wish with all my soul, cried Sir John, that Willoughby were still among us. This and Marianne's blushing gave new suspicions to Edward. And who was Willoughby? said he in a voice, in a low voice to Miss Dashwood, by whom he was sitting. She gave him a brief reply. Marianne's countenance was more communicative. 
Edward saw enough to comprehend not only the meaning of others, but such of Marianne's expressions as had puzzled him before. And when their visitors left them, he went immediately round to her and said in a whisper, I have been guessing. Shall I tell you my guess? What do you mean? Shall I tell you? Certainly. Well, then, I guess that Mr. Willoughby hunts. Marianne was quite surprised and confused, yet she could not help smiling at the quiet archness of his manner, and after a moment's silence said, Oh, Edward, how can you? But the time will come, I hope. I am sure you will like him. I do know, I do not doubt it, he replied, rather astonished at her earnestness and warmth, for he had not imagined it to be a joke for the good of her acquaintance in general, founded only on a, something of or nothing between Mr. Willoughby and, him, and herself. He would not have ventured to mention it. Chapter 19. Edward remained a week at the cottage. He was earnestly pressed by Mrs. Dashwood to stay longer, but if he were bent only on self-mortification, he seemed resolved to be gone when his enjoyment among his friends was at the height. His spirits during the last two or three days, still though very unequal, were greatly improved, and he grew more and more partial to the house and the environs. Never spoke of going away without a sigh, declared his time to be wholly disengaged, even doubted as to what pace he should go when he left them, but still go he must. Never had a week pass so quickly, he could hardly believe it to be gone. He said so repeatedly. Other things he said too, which marked the turn of his feelings and gave the lie to his actions. He had no pleasure at New Orleans. He detested being in town, but either to New Orleans or London he must go. He valued their kindness beyond anything, and his greatest happiness was in being with them. Yet he must leave them at the end of the week in spite of their wishes and his own, and without any restraint on his time. Eleanor placed all that was astonishing in this way of acting to his mother's account, and it was happy for her that he had a mother whose character was so imperfectly known to her as to be the general excuse for everything strange on the part of her son. Disappointed, however, and vexed as she was, and sometimes displeased with his uncertain behavior to herself, she was very disappointed on the whole to regard his actions with all of the candid allowances and generous disqualifications, which had been rather more painfully extorted from her for Willoughby's service by her mother. His want of spirits, of openness, and of consistency were most, un were most usually attributed to his want of independence and his better knowledge of Mrs. Ferris's disposition and designs. The shortness of his visit, the steadiness of his purpose in leaving them, originated in the same fettered inclination, the same inevitable necessity of temporizing with his mother. The old, well-established grievance of a duty against will, parent against child, was the cause of it all. She would have been glad to know when these difficulties were to cease, this opposition was to yield, when Mrs. Ferris would be reformed and her son would be at liberty to be happy. But from such vain wishes, she was forced to return for comfort to the renewal of her confidence in Edward's affection, to the remembrance of every mark of regard and look or word which fell from him while at Barton, and above all to that flattering proof of it which he was consistently wore around his finger. I think, Edward, said Mrs. Dashwood, as they were, they were at breakfast in late morning, you should be a happier man if you had any profession to engage your time and keep an interest to your plans and actions. Some inconvenience to your friends, indeed, might result from it. You would not be able to give them as much of your time, but you would be mater <clears throat> materially benefit in one particular at least. You would know where to go and when you left them. 
I do assure you, he replied, that I have long thought on this point, as you think now. It has been and is, and it probably will always have a heavy misfortune to me, that I have had no necessary business to engage me, no profession to give me employment or afford me anything like independence. But unfortunately, my own nicety and the nicety of my friends have made me what I am, an idle, helpless being. We never could agree on our choice of profession. I always preferred the church, as I still do, but that was not smart enough for my family. They recommended the army. That was a great deal too smart for me. The law was allowed to be genteel enough. Many young men who had claimed chambers in the temple made a very good appearance in the first circles and drove about town in very knowing gigs. But I had no inclination for the law, even in this less obtruse study of it, which my family approved. As far as the Navy, it had fashion on its side, but I was too old when the subject was first started to enter it, and at length there was no necessity for my having any profession at all, as I might be as dashing as expensive without a red coat on my back than as with one. Idleness was pronounced on the whole to be the most advantageous and honorable, and a young man of 18 is not in generally so earnestly bent on being busy as to resist the solicitations of his friends to do nothing. I was therefore entered at Oxford and have been properly idle ever since. The consequence of which I suppose will be, said Mrs. Dashwood, since leisure has not promoted your own happiness, that your sons will be brought up to as many pursuits, employments, professions, and trades as Clomelis. They will all be brought up, he said in a serious accent, to be as unlike myself as possible in feeling and action and condition and everything. Come, come, this is all an effusion of immediate wants of spirits, Edwards. You are in a melancholy humor, and fancy that anyone unlike yourself must be happy. But remember that the pain of parting from friends will be felt by everybody at times, whatever their education or state. Know your happiness. You want nothing but patience, or give it more fascinating name, call it hope. Your mother will secure you in time that independence you are so anxious for. It is her duty, and it will... It must ere long become her happiness to prevent your whole youth from being wasted in discontent. How much may not a few months do? I think, replied Edward, that I may defy many months to produce any good to me. This despond desponding turn of mind, though it could not be communicated to Mrs. Dashwood, gave additional pain to them all in the parting, which shortly took place, and left an uncomfortable presentation impression on Eleanor's feelings, especially, which required some trouble and time to subdue. But as it was her determination to subdue it and to prevent herself from appearing to suffer more than what all of her family had suffered on his going away, she did not adopt the method so judiciously employed by Marianne on a similar occasion to augment and fix her sorrow by seeking silence, solitude, and idleness. Their means were as different as their objects and equally suited to the advancement of each." Eleanor sat down at her drawing table as soon as he was out of the house, busily employed herself the whole day, neither sought nor avoided the mention of his name, appeared to interest herself almost as much as ever in the general concerns of the family, and if by this conduct she did not lessen her own grief, it was at least prevented from unnecessary increase, and her mother and sisters were spared much solitude on her account. Such behavior as this, so exactly the reverse of her own, appeared no more meritorious to Marianne than her own had seemed faulty to her. The business of self-command she settled very easily, with strong affections it was possible, with calm ones it could have no merit, that her sister's affections were calm. She dared not deny, though she blushed to acknowledge it, and the strength of her own she gave very striking proof by loving and respecting that sister in spite of this mortifying conviction. Without shutting herself up from her fam 
from her family or leaving the house in a determined solitude to avoid them or laying awake the whole night to indulge meditation. Eleanor found every day afforded her leisure enough to think of Edward and of Edward's behavior in every possible variety, which the different state of her spirits at different times could produce with tenderness, pity, approbation, censure, and doubt. There were moments in abundance when, if not by the absence of her mother and sisters, at least by the nature of their employments, conversation was forbidden among them, and every effect of solitude was produced. Her mind was inevitably at liberty, her thoughts could not be chained elsewhere, and the past and the future on a subject so interesting must be before her, must force her attention and engross her memory, her reflection, her fancy." From a reverie of this kind, she sat at her drawing table. She was roused one morning soon after Edward's leaving them by the arrival of company. She happened to be quite alone. The closing of the little gate at the entrance of the green court in front of the house drew her eyes to the window, and she saw a large, a large party walking up to the door. Amongst them were Sir John and Lady Middleton and Mrs. Jennings, but there were two others, a gentleman and lady, who were quite unknown to her. She was sitting near the window, and as soon as Sir John perceived her, he left the rest of the party to the ceremony of knocking on the door and stepping across the turf obliged her to open the casement to speak to him through the space was so short between the door and the window as to make it hardly possible to speak at one without being overheard by the other. Well, said he, we you like them. Hush, they will hear you. Never mind if they do. It's only the Palmers. Charlotte is very pretty. I can tell you look this way. As Eleanor was certain of seeing her in a couple minutes without taking that liberty, she begged to be excused. Where is Marianne? Has she run away because we are come? I see her instrument is open. She is walking, I believe. They were now joined by Mrs. Jennings, who had not patience enough to wait until the door was open before she told her story. She came hollowing down the window. How do you do, my dear? How does Mrs. Dashwood do? And where are your sisters? What, all alone? You will be glad of a little company to sit with you. I have brought my other son and daughter to see you. Only think of their coming so suddenly. I thought I heard a carriage last night while we were drinking our tea, but it never entered my head that it could be them. I thought of nothing but whether it might be the Colonel Brandon come back. Or, so I said to Sir John, I do think I hear a carriage. Perhaps it is Colonel Brandon come back again. Eleanor was obliged to turn from her in the middle of her story to receive the rest of the party. Lady Middleton introduced the two stranger, strangers. Mrs. Dashwood and Margaret came down the stairs at the same time, and they all sat down to look at one another while Mrs. Jennings continued her story, and she walked through the passage into the parlor attended by Sir John. Mrs. Palmer had several years younger than Lady Middleton, and totally unlike her in every respect. She was short and plump and had very a very pretty face, and the finest expression of good humor in that could possibly be. Her manners were by no means so elegant as her sister's, but they were much more repossessing. She came in with a smile, smiled all the time of her visit except when she laughed, and smiled when she went away. Her husband was a grave-looking young man of five or six and twenty, with an air of more fashion and sense than his wife, but less willingness to please or be pleased. He entered the room with a look of self-consequence, slightly bowed to the ladies without speaking a word, and, after briefly serving them in their apartments, took up a newspaper from the table and continued to read it as long as he stayed. Mrs. Palmer, on the contrary, who was strongly endowed by nature with a turn for being uniformly civil and happy, was hardly seated before her admiration of the parlor and everything in it burst forth. Well, what a delightful room this is. I never saw anything so charming. Only think, Mama, how it has improved since I was here last. I always thought it such a sweet place, ma'am, returning to Miss Dashwood. But you have made it so charming. Only look, sister, how delightful everything is. How I should 
like such a house for myself. Should you not, Mr. Palmer? Mr. Palmer made her no answer. It did not even raise from the paper. Mr. Palmer does not hear me, she said laughing. He never does. Sometimes it's so ridiculous. This was quite a new idea to Mrs. Dashwood. She had never been used to finding, she had never used to find wit in the inattention of anyone and could not help looking with surprise at them both. Mrs. Jennings, in the meantime, talked on as loud as she could and continued her account of their surprise the evening before on seeing their friends without ceasing till everything was told. Mrs. Palmer laughed heartily at the recollection of their astonishment, and everybody agreed two or three times over that it had been quite an agreeable surprise. You may believe how glad we were to see them, added Mrs. Jennings, leaning forward toward Eleanor and speaking in a low voice as if she meant to be heard by no one else, though they were seated on different sides of the room. But however, I couldn't help wishing they had not traveled quite so fast, nor made such a long journey of it, for they came all round by London upon account of some business, for you know, nodding significantly and pointing to her daughter. It was wrong in her situation. I wanted her to stay at home and rest this morning, but she would come with us. She longed so much to see you all. Mrs. Palmer laughed and said it would not do her any harm. She expects to be confined in February, continued Mrs. Jennings. Lady Middleton could no longer endure such a conversation and therefore exerted herself to ask Mr. Palmer if there was any news in the paper. No, none at all, he replied and read on. Here comes Marianne, cried Sir John. Now, Palmer, you shall see a monstrous pretty girl. He immediately went into he immediately went into the passage, opened the front door, and ushered her in himself. Mrs. Jennings asked her as soon as she appeared if she had not been to Allenham, and Mrs. Palmer laughed so heartily at the question as to show it understood it. Mr. Palmer looked up upon her entering the room, stared at her some minutes, and then returned to his paper. Mrs. Palmer's eye was now caught on the drawings which hung around the room. She got up to examine them. Oh, dear, how beautiful these are. Well, how delightful. But do look, Mama, how sweet. I declare they are quite charming. I could look forever at them. And then sitting down again, she very soon forgot that there were any such things in the room. When Lady Middleton rose to go away, Mr. Palmer rose also, laid down the newspaper, stretched himself, and looked at them all around. My love, have you been asleep? said his wife, laughing. He made her no answer and only observed, after again examining the room, that it was very low-pitched and that the ceiling was crooked. He then made his bow and departed with the rest. Sir John had been very urgent with them to spend all the next day at the park. Mrs. Dashwood, who did not choose to dine with them oftener than they dined at the cottage, absolutely refused on her own account. Her daughters might do as they pleased, but they had no curiosity to see how Mr. and Mrs. Palmer ate their dinner, and no expectation of pleasure from them in any way. This attempted, therefore, likewise to excuse themselves. The weather was uncertain and likely to be, and not likely to be good. But Sir John would not be satisfied. The carriage should be sent for them, and they must come. Lady Middleton, too, though she did not press their mother, pressed them. Mrs. Jennings and Mrs. Palmer joined their entreaties. All seemed equally anxious to avoid a family party, and the young ladies were obliged to yield. <coughs> Why should they ask us, said Marianne, as soon as they were gone. The rent of this cottage is said to be low, but we have it on very hard terms if we are to dine at the park whenever any one of us is staying with either one of them or with us. They mean no less to be civil and unkind to us now, said Eleanor, by these frequent invitations than with those which we have received from them a few weeks ago. The alteration is not in them if their parties are all have all grown tedious and dull. We must look for the change elsewhere.